What are you putting what up your nose? You What's in your sniffing bottle? <laughs> it is Flonays. You guys lead the way. I have no notes. So <laughs> Well, I can assure you neither does Elliot. So let's <laughs> let's get into it. We need to be doing that. A podcast that combines sports, social media content, and life. I'm Jonah Ballo. I'm Keith Steckler. I'm Elliot Gerard. We have experience in ad agencies and marketing, digital content across teams in the NBA, and creative for brands, teams, and athletes. Come on. We need to be doing that. All right, we're happy to uh, welcome Matt Worst to the program. We're going to talk about his background in marketing and advertising, something we have in common. We're also going to talk about what he's up to recently with Jellyfish, and that'll make a lot more sense in probably 20 to 25 minutes. But what we really want to dig into with Matt is Clubhouse. It's something that we haven't yet tackled on the program, and we've all been dabbling with it. It seems as if Matt's been dabbling a little harder than, than the three of us. And we'd like to uh, get his perspective on what's working, what isn't, and some of the opportunities. So, Matt, welcome, man. Good to have you. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me here in this space. Uh, nice to be returning to the OG audio format of podcasting, which feels like uh, dinosaur media compared to Clubhouse and some of the <laughs> real-time live audio opportunities and platforms that have been popping up in the last few months. Um, of which I would say I am two rungs above dabbling on the uh, experiential ladder with Clubhouse. I've been doing it progressively a bit more. And you're right, there are a number of different opportunities. But what's cool about it, just as the early days of social, you kind of get out of it what you put in. And there can be a lot of effort and a lot of great takeaways that come out of those types of relationship building experiences and content learning opportunities and even sharing opportunities. But you can be a lurker, you can be a listener, you can be a contributor, and you can be a leader. And what's cool about Clubhouse is you can kind of be all of those at different times of day or night or with the different types of rooms and or I guess they're called clubhouses that you want to participate in. And that's what I've really enjoyed most about it. How do you see it progressing in terms of like, how are you taking advantage of it for your, you know, personal, um, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, of reaching out to clients or, or just in, in terms of your career in general? And how do you see it progressing um, to become more of a, a client based or, um, you know, marketing tool uh, than what it is today? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm assuming that just based on knowing you guys, that your audience is quite savvy and digitally adept. So I'm not going to go into the whole background of Clubhouse. But at a high level, it started with a bunch of VCs and tech innovators, and in some cases, influencers coming together to just talk about really Clubhouse. It was this meta experience of people talking about the format and how they think it could be used. And for several months, that's really all it was. And I didn't really get too much value out of it then. But as the last few months have progressed, and it's opened up to a number of different types of people from creators, to celebrities, to marketers, to other tech people, and really journalists too. I'm um, seeing people like Andrew Ross Sorkin or you know, 
Kate Baldwin from CNN, just like jumping in and getting on stage, not even hosting, just participating. It's been really cool to see this convergence of different types of uh, conversation that's taken place. Some of it is structured. Some of it is totally unplanned and really just trying to see what type of kismet they create. But the structure of some of those conversations has definitely become more enhanced and advanced over the last few months. There's planning. There are people who are finding their niche. And it speaks to, as I, as I alluded to earlier, the in some ways it parallels how the digital communities of 10 and 15 years ago that even predated social, but bled into social media platforms like Facebook um, and even, even a little bit later into uh, Instagram and Pinterest, Clubhouse is really a great digital niche community platform where people with like-minded experiences or viewpoints or even different viewpoints, but coming together around certain topics can meet and interact. And that's where I think brands will begin to have more of an opportunity. I do think the founders and even some of the early adopters and leaders in the space are wary of what brand involvement can mean. But for people like me as a marketer, as an advertiser, as a content creator, it's been a place where I'm finding other people who are platform side, tech side, uh, even other agency folks and marketers to an extent are talking about topics. It could be GDPR and what Google did to depreciate the cookie in their news. It's what iOS 14 means for Facebook and brands. just a couple of days ago, a gaffe, a marketing gaffe that a brand had, um, and I don't want to mention it unless you guys want me to, but maybe it was a uh, fast food chain that we, uh, did we, something. We like cheeseburgers. Go ahead. Yeah, Let it rip. You know, it's like, but that's where just a bunch of people came together, uh, like eight o'clock at night, and we're talking about what Burger King could do to correct a marketing mistake that they made. Uh, on International Women's Day. So it was just really a brainstorm. And no one from Burger King was even involved. It was the head of social media for a huge bank globally. It was a CMO of another company. It was just us coming together and brainstorming about how we could, what we would do in their situation. So I think that's where it's really been valuable for me to just tap into some of my roots at the intersection of content and marketing. But brands are definitely doing thought leadership opportunities they're bringing in uh, and connecting with each other. They're bringing in their own leads, whether it's a CMO or a CEO and just hosting a panel, but there are different ways you can use it. Again, like the panel, the just kind of open forum to just, you know, gab and, and see what news of the day you want to talk about. But I think it will be weird if you then saw like, Ronald McDonald with a clubhouse profile. Like, I don't know that there's really a place for that. I, I see a few brands have tried that. You know, Gary V brought in the Kool-Aid guy and it was the most bizarre hour I've had on clubhouse in the last six months. Um, all he was doing was, um, you know, saying, Oh yeah. Every, every time someone said something compelling and I lost the value of that novelty after about 30 seconds, but what's cool about it is we are all still early oh, yeah. adopters. You stayed in it for an hour. I did because, yeah, and because ultimately the conversation was went in a different direction where we were talking about what role brands could play in Clubhouse. Uh, and then even after Gary left, 
the conversation, I mean, this is no knock on Gary, it actually got more interesting because it was just a bunch of people talking, not necessarily in any curated format, but just exploring the studio space in a, in a much more uh, lighthearted, directionless way. Now, how do you feel, and I think we can say this about a lot of things in the last year, but how do you feel the success of Clubhouse and these particular rooms, like the one you mentioned with the marketing gaffe, is attributed to the fact that we're home, we're not going to our jobs? I mean, I would liken that Clubhouse you had with the uh, the Burger King issue to something you and I and a bunch of other people would be discussing at happy hour over drinks. It would not be on the internet. So is this really rooted in the fact that we're all home and we have the ability to do it? It's a good question, and I think the answer is twofold. It's First is, it's not an or situation. It's probably an and situation. I think that people are finding opportunities or looking for opportunities to connect in new ways, right? There are the you know, virtual meeting areas like Lunch Club, where people are just connected through professional speed dating, and we've seen the rise of virtual conferences, so this is an opportunity during the day, if you are so inclined, to find topics or even create a topic that you want to lead. I haven't found that I am any less busy than I was before. In fact, I'm probably busier because of the more structured and planned meetings that we have to have. So I have found my clubhouse kismet and connection to be happening after hours. So yeah, maybe instead of a happy hour, I might be doing this, but I'm actually finding my most opportune clubhouse experiences to be between the hours of like 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. I might take a break to put my kids to bed or I might be listening in a clubhouse chat room on mute when I'm you know, sitting in the rocking chair while my daughter's falling asleep and then go run back downstairs to make a comment in the room that I couldn't make 10 minutes ago because I had to be quiet. So I do think that there is an opportunity just based on the platform itself for anyone and everyone to find value, whether it's something you're taking out, whether it's something you put in. Weirdly enough, I, it took me a few weeks to get up the courage to raise my hand and participate because I just didn't really know the rules and didn't want to feel like an idiot speaking over people or how the mute button worked. I didn't really know. So I wanted to watch and learn. And for people who just want to get something out of what other people might be sharing as far as thought leadership or topical conversation, you don't ever have to talk, which is great. That is not the case in a happy hour with your friends. If you guys were at a bar with me and I was just sitting there in the corner not talking, you'd think there's something wrong with me. Maybe you already do, but at least it would be much more pronounced, my you know antisocial manifestations in person. So. Here I can be antisocial or overly social in uh, in an audio-only format, and I don't have to wear pants. Just like I don't have to wear pants for this conversation in a podcast. I happen to be wearing pants, just in case anyone is curious and wants to visualize it. But I think, if anything, Clubhouse has probably taken more out of the podcast space than the in-person or even virtual meeting space. So hopefully your traffic hasn't dropped because of it. And if it has, hopefully this podcast will get your ratings back up. So I think the thing that I am in most need of is a, a preset 
time limit on these rooms so that I understand what I'm getting into before I jump into it. I think that's one of the missing pieces for me. I don't know, is this going to be a 20 minute discussion? Is this a three hour discussion? And I've seen a lot of people on social almost brag about the fact that this clubhouse room went two hours, three hours, and I don't understand the the importance of that. So are you finding uh, time constraints to, to also be an issue? I think that there are different types of expectations that can be set by the clubhouse leader or the moderators when planning it. And those expectations should be set in the meeting description. And for those who choose to attend something that is planned, again, there should be an expectation of length. And oftentimes there is. Last night I was invited to uh, watch and listen, I guess listen and not watch, uh, the conversation that was taking place on the future of women's sports with Candace Parker joining my old friend Ian Schaefer. And he said in the beginning, this is going to be an hour. Candace has to leave. But if anyone wants to stay, we'll stick around after and have a conversation. And I thought that was great because there were definitely people who joined in the middle. And when that happens, it's the job of the moderator to reset the room. We're here with Candace Parker and we're talking about X, Y, and Z for anyone who's joined since we first started because not everyone tunes in like it's appointment listening at 8 p.m. You might join in at 8.15, 8.30. Mm-hmm. So I think those types of moderation tactics will become more mainstream as people get more experience with it. But I don't necessarily think you have to have preset limits if you don't want them. Again, that conversation ended up lasting another 45 minutes. And it was really cool just to be part of a more roundtable discussion. So I think it depends on where and how you discover the content, but expectations can and should be sent, should be set. Um, And if you want to have a three-hour conversation, great. I'd love to join for part of it, but don't blame me if I ask a question or make a comment that someone addressed an hour and 45 minutes ago. Right. No, I, I like I like the answer because I think I was looking to the platform to sort of make those rules. And it seems, and I agree with you, it's on the moderator. Because I also think the thing is, is if I've joined halfway, I don't know if I want to stick around. I don't know what topics are going to be discussed. And the moderator should hopefully, you know, put that into the room. These are the, these are the questions we're, we're going to hit. These are the topics we're going to talk you're about thinking soon. Old world it's hard media. to know. Like that's what you're used to six second, 30 second, 15 yeah. second spots, or this video has to be a minute in order to fit certain predefined parameters. That's just not what this platform is about in the same way that it, you may look at a podcast recording and know, okay, this is going to go 44 minutes because it's been edited. It's been packaged. It's been produced. And there's value to that. You know, you can edit out me coughing in a podcast. You can't edit me out, uh, edit me out coughing or saying something dumb on Clubhouse, unfortunately, because I say a lot of dumb things on Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about parameters. It kind of brings up a point of, so Facebook has basically said that they're going to destroy this or whatever. And do you think, why do you think that um, it will or won't? You know, like why? You know, like why? Why is Clubhouse going to um, stay relevant, even if other you know platforms try to take over, whether it's a Facebook or a LinkedIn or, or whomever? It's it's a good um, question, and, and honestly, it, they may okay. not for one important reason. I'll start with the why they may not make it. Clubhouse is still only available to those with an iPhone 
And globally, I think iPhones are only about 10 to 15% of smartphone usage. Android globally is like 80 plus percent. Mm-hmm. Now, I know a lot of that is in, uh, in Asia and EMEA. And here, I mean, it's, it's the reason why Clubhouse proliferation has been very slow. It's just, it's not, it hasn't caught on yet with everyone who has a different device. I think that'll change. It looks like they finally hired a, an Android app developer. Good for them a year later. I don't know what took so long. I think Facebook does, and even more so, Twitter has an opportunity to really compete in this space because the format lends itself to more free-flowing conversation. Twitter is where people are writing and engaging with people in that less structured format, whereas Facebook, for better and worse, even though there are 2 billion people on Facebook, it's not a place where free-flowing conversation has historically taken place. We know it's become more of a media platform. The algorithms work much more um, to the detriment of free-flowing conversation in places like Facebook, whereas Twitter spaces, which I've played around with and really like, but has not seen yet mass adoption, um, I think that's the one that it's going to be really um, the one to watch out for. Because the same types of people, the influencers, the journalists, the creators are on Twitter already. So mm-hmm. let's see how mm-hmm. they yeah. compete. Whereas Facebook, you know, my mom is not going to be clubhousing with her her friends from high school, which is what she's using <laughs> Facebook for. She is not going to be using it for engaging... Maybe book club, but why couldn't another niche community like Goodreads create some sort of audio visual platform? Or why wouldn't they be using mm-hmm. existing channels? I don't know. I, I don't necessarily rule out the fact that Clubhouse's days could be numbered, but the two things that they have going for it are one, early adoption, and two, influencer, VC, tech, media, creator involvement already. And the fact that there is some really good conversation already taking place. Well, I, I wonder, like, you know, it's been around a decent amount. Like, how, how long has it been? Been a year, you're saying? Like, uh, that it's, it's been, been about around, a uh, year. But really, if you look at their hockey stick of adoption and usage, it's only in the last three months. Uh, it's funny because I was on in like yeah, June yeah, and yeah. July, and I was like, there's nothing here for me. And I deleted it. And then when I, I rejoined again in like mm-hmm. November or December and like, you've only been on since November. I'm like, well, technically that's true for this account, but I, I it's almost like I deleted my <laughs> Facebook account and then rejoined again, 10 years later, that would have been um, a, a similar story when, when more people can join just through, um, through Android devices. I'd say, I don't want to ruin the platform as a marketer yet. Well, we have we have a few years before we can ruin it. But yeah, no, I do I do think there is some sticking. I think what you're saying with like the influencers and with with all sorts of people, athletes, uh, you know, reporters, uh, uh, marketers, all kind of like big time people showing up in, in different rooms. It, um, I think there's some sticking power to that. That I don't know if you start, uh, you know, with with Twitter with Spaces, is that going to um, elevate as fast? If you've already got this kind of uh, you got it in one unique space. Um, how, how are you going to build that again uh, when you've already kind of built that equity? Uh, well, look, people with, can be in both places. I've yeah. been on Clubhouse while also tweeting, and that's the value of the fact that it's an audio device 
that you don't have to like close uh, an audio app that you don't have to close. You can multitask. The good thing that Twitter has going for it is if you're already in Twitter, you can kind of see who else is in your network involved in a space. Right now, it's not typically many people. There aren't many rooms happening. You have to follow someone who's in a room in order to see what's going on. There's no, they call it the hallway in Clubhouse, where you can just kind of scroll and drop in on something that you didn't even know was happening, or you may not know anybody in the room. But that's why I did that accidentally once mm-hmm. and ended up staying. And they had no idea who I was. I made some comments, but I mostly listened. Um, it was around something totally unrelated to anything I would ever be a part of in terms of just thought leadership and conversation. <laughs> but it was cool. It was cool to hear people from all over the world participating. It was more like how to sell your art. And then it became an NFT conversation. And that's where I felt like I could take some sort of digital uh, knowledge and expertise and drop some bombs on people. Um, and then they're like, no, that's stupid. I want to sell it so it can be displayed in someone's home. I'm like, what's the difference between displaying an art product on someone's computer or on their wall? What do you care? You're making money as a creator either way. It's still one of one, right? Exactly. You mentioned the uh, the Candace Parker interview or discussion. What other interesting things have you seen, whether it was on Clubhouse or Twitter spaces, that might be an opportunity for those who are in marketing who are listening to this? Well, we talked about Burger King, and I, I feel bad just giving them a, an L on this because days earlier, Burger King had set up a Clubhouse Burger King leadership, or it may have been their parent company, uh, Restaurants Brand International or some format of whatever um, RBI stands for in the marketing space and not the baseball space. But they took leaders from the Burger King and, and Popeye's team, created their own clubhouse to let people really quiz them on anything they wanted to after a you know quarterly financial report. I thought that was really cool. I think they called it like open kitchen or open something like that. Some clever, some clever copywriter came up with that brilliant idea. And I thought that was great. There was transparency. There was openness. They weren't running and hiding from anything. So days later, when they had their issue with their UK tweet around women's uh, international women's day, the fact that they did not come back to clubhouse to defend themselves or explain it, I thought that was the issue, right? Don't be there when you're sharing good things and not there when, bad things happen. So I think brands also have to figure out where, where this platform fits in their messaging and communication ecosystem. Right? How open and transparent do you want to be? Knowing that the audience on Clubhouse is probably more savvy, will ask harder questions, you got to be ready for that. But this is where a digital and broader brand marketing strategy becomes so important. What is the role of each platform? Who is the audience on each platform? What is the opportunity to create content for that audience on this platform? And this is just like any other marketing vehicle in terms of how brands can communicate. Brands have to be open to and comfortable with not being data-driven and not being data-led, even though everything that they've been told needs to be, we need to be data-led and data-driven. Well, guess what? There needs to be some percentage of your mindset that goes to something that is either new or next, right? And that's not something that every brand is willing to do. But as purpose-led and performance-led 
and brand building led conversations all come together in this swirl of strategy and ultimately execution, that level of adaptation and agility and flexibility and openness to trying new things is going to be super important. So talk to us about what you're up to lately with Jellyfish and what that's all about. Yeah, Jellyfish is a great global media and technology company that has been around for 15 years, started in the UK, but over the last two or three years has been on this really visionary quest to expand and innovate and lead in a number of different ways that other agencies, holding companies, and even consultancies have not yet been able to accomplish, don't want to accomplish, or just haven't figured out yet. And that's why this is really exciting. I'm in the what I would consider to be the middle of the third arc of my career. I started 20 plus years ago at the intersection of content and marketing, working at a at a really a guerrilla marketing agency at the time that was experimenting with digital before there really was digital marketing, uh, websites and and different types of just educational and engagement type content opportunities. I took my talents to the MBA. And at the MBA, which is and always has been an innovative digital and marketing company, in addition to a basketball and entertainment company, we had the opportunity to try things out in digital, building websites, figuring out how brands could activate on the platforms and, and made some of the best relationships that still last to this day but also had a, an opportunity to try things out and experiment in ways that I think I'm grateful for now at this stage of my career, because not everybody is as innovative and forward thinking. Having left the MBA and gone into the agency world at a time when social and digital was non-existent, again, I had an opportunity to innovate and you know, build a road and navigate where there wasn't necessarily anything that was predefined. There was no map. And as a digital marketer and a content creator, that left brain, right brain synergy became really interesting. How do I find right brain solutions to left brain challenges and left brain solutions to right brain challenges? That's, that is a whole brain approach that many agencies still haven't figured out. But at 360i, which was ultimately acquired by Dentsu, that was the vision that we were building. How do we bring creative and media together? How do we bring analytics and strategy together? And there was no answer. And that was what was really interesting for me, building a process, building a team, um, doing this on the brand's dime was also fun. Figuring stuff out, you know, what is Coke's Facebook strategy? When they built a Facebook page, had a million followers back then and had no idea what to do with it. Well, you bring content together with an understanding of marketing strategy and you create the roadmap. When I left 360i in 2018, I was like, I'm never working at an agency again. It's just, it's over. Agencies are done. It's just not where the future is for content and marketing. And it took a few months off, did some consulting, really speed dated a lot of founders at companies who I thought could be interesting to work with as a marketer and content creator. I talked to people on the platform side and I realized that none of them would satisfy the different whole brain needs that I had, the left brain and right brain. And around this time, I met a recruiter who was looking to 
help build in the U.S. an agency-like consultancy creative arm. I mean, there was no real definition for it, but for a big global publishing company based out of Europe. It's like, hmm. I could do this. I get to build my own type of agency-like model, again, on someone else's dime, but in a way that could be different than how anyone else was going to do it. And that's what Revelation was for the last two or three years. We were creating omni-channel content that was not limited by platform, but really defined by where the consumer opportunity was to connect from a brand building and a performance marketing uh, perspective, right? How to create lifestyle content that's also lifestyle marketing content at the same time. And I did that for several years, built a great team with this network behind us. And it was that network, it was called the Webedia Network, that was acquired by Jellyfish. So the Revelation team, along with a number of other different types of products and services and solutions, now really round out what was Jellyfish 1.0 as one of, if not the best global programmatic and performance media company. We're now bringing thousands of content creators to create this left brain, right brain, global specialist model, all under one solutions and product oriented experience for brands. They could work with us in a highly specialized way around media or tech or creative and content, or we could bring all these pieces together in a way that the holding companies say they do, but don't because they're a house of brands with their own internal dysfunction and P&L issues and politics, or in a way that competes with the consultancies, but the consultancies don't really have that global strategy plus executional capability. We have 10,000 creators in our network. We can do production, we can do content strategy, and then activate on it with our platform relationships. Google, Facebook, Salesforce, Amazon. We have really, really tight partnerships where we can activate and bring brands and their content into these ways, into these platforms that it's creation focused, it is optimization focused, it is localized, and it is iterative in this positive feedback loop. And while I am only three months or so into my official jellyfish experience as an official jelly, and yes, that's what we're called. Uh, I've been working with jellyfish for a number of years in more of a partnership capacity, and that is really going to change the way I think brands work with platforms and brands work with agencies and the way brands need to build their own internal teams. No, absolutely. Well, we're, we're honored to have you on the show, man. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's been great to hear your perspective on on a, a growing um, a growing new field and uh, and all the stuff that you're doing at Jellyfish is, is exciting. I mean, uh, I remember when you told me, you know, you were you were launching your, I guess the the agency before was kind of you had you had launched it and and the the whole philosophy that you guys had was was very different. You know, in terms of like if you need a publisher, we have that within our group. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of uh, agencies don't don't fully get that, and um, I, I definitely appreciate that. Bespoke solutions is kind of the way that I would communicate now an offering that is going to be flexible and different based on what brands and marketers have built and have at their disposal internally, as well as what they're doing with their existing agencies. We can kind of fit in in a number of different ways. Uh, a way to think about jellyfish as as uh, as we move forward is almost like an Uber 
for marketing, where if you've got certain needs, or even in Amazon, right? Like you can go to the menu and say, we need this thing, or we need a few of these things at different times. Like who can help us? Where, where, who can come pick us up? That could be a long-term relationship. It could be a one-time project that turns into something larger. But really the full menu of what Jellyfish can offer now is unlike anything I've ever heard of. Well, where can people uh, catch up with you, uh, learn more, follow you, connect with you? Where do you want to send people to? Well, it's very clear that I am an omni-channel marketer and content creator. So whether you're following me on Twitter at MWorst or you're subscribing to my weekly newsletter called The Four Ps, where I talk about something personal, something professional, something political, dangerously enough, and something practical, <laughs> uh, the best place to probably find me is first on Twitter. And if you see at MWorst in Clubhouse or on Clubhouse or near a Clubhouse or probably in the doghouse at some point, occasionally, I am always <laughs> happy to talk and connect with anybody. That's a wrap for this week. Thanks for listening to the We Need to Be Doing That podcast. Visit we need to be doing that.com for more episodes and contact information. 